My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. So um, today on Trinity Sunday, we come to the end of a large cycle of important holy days in the life of the church, in our church calendar. Last week was Pentecost, where we commemorated the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, emboldening them and empowering them to go and speak the word with boldness and to continue the miraculous works of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today is Trinity Sunday, and whenever we have a service here at this church, Every Sunday or Wednesday, we will always open with and we will always close with an invocation to the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We will never invoke the Creator, the Sustainer, the Redeemer, or God our Mother, Child, and Spirit. We will always invoke God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as God's revelation through Scripture. And those... Other titles, though well-intentioned, were, I think, developed to solve a problem that doesn't actually exist. Or if that problem does exist, it's just a problem created by bad theology. And earlier in the service, you may have scratched your head as we confess the Athanasian Creed, not written by St. Athanasius, but bearing his name, as a faithful Christian expression of the concept of the dogma of the Trinity. Now, the church though realizing the mystery of the Trinity has always used as precise language as possible, but knowing the limitations and when to stop. And that's sometimes a problem for us today. Many theologians don't know when to stop because for them the Trinity is something that needs to be defined. But the Holy Trinity is not a concept to be defined. The Holy Trinity is something to be contemplated with the eyes of the soul. In other words, the Holy Trinity and our encounter with the divine life of the Godhead is something that is supposed to move us towards worship, towards adoration. The Church Fathers knew this well. In his 40th oration, St. Gregory Nazianzus said this, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illuminated by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one, so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch, and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. The Trinity our encounter with the divine life of God is something that moves us to worship and adoration and contemplation. We heard read this morning Psalm 29, and we're going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, some of the things in Psalm 29 uh, this morning. This morning's sermon is, is entitled Worship of the Trinity. So in Psalm 29, it begins with something very interesting. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. 
We're going to focus pretty much on those two verses this morning. Ascribing to the Lord glory and strength, O heavenly beings, and ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name, worshiping the Lord in the beauty or the splendor of holiness. So right away, we see something very interesting here in Psalm 29. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. So when it says, O heavenly beings, what is it talking about? And I'm glad you asked, because that's a really good question. Some other translations will say, O heavenly beings, they will translate that, O sons of God. So we have to realize that when it says, O sons of God, or O heavenly beings, it's a reference to the same thing. And you remember, if you remember your, your, your Bible study from when you were growing up, and that one book that you always stayed away from, well, maybe you got the first part and you got the end part, the book of Job. Remember the book of Job? It's the book where it says at the beginning, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Do you remember that? Just say yes, even if you don't. It's there. You can go and look at it later. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And so we scratch our head and say, well, what does that mean, sons of God, heavenly beings? What is going on here? So we're going to have to get a little bit into some, some biblical... Uh, some, some biblical stuff that's a little deep. So I want you to stay with me, okay, for just a minute. We're going to get through it together. I trust you, you can handle it. When the psalm here in 29, and there's also Psalm 82 that says, you know, the Lord stood up and amongst, the God, God stood up amongst the gods and said X, Y, and Z. When the psalm here in another place is refers to heavenly beings or to sons of God, it's not a reference to human beings, okay? It's a reference not to human beings. So, we have to keep this in mind about the people of the Bible, and about the writers of the Old Testament in particular. So we think, reading back into the biblical text, things about Judaism, or the Judaisms of that time, that weren't actually present then. Okay? So if I say the word monotheism, you know what monotheism, right? They believe that there's only one God and there's no other spiritual kind of forces or anything in the world. There's only one, one God, and that is strict, 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 right? But back in those days, right, when we just read here from Psalm 29, there was a belief among other cultures, and you see this when you read the Old Testament. It's very, it's, it's very much there. Right in the story of Abraham, when, when he, he finishes fighting those kings and rescues his nephew Lot, and he's coming back with everybody, and this priest named Melchizedek comes out of, the, comes out of Jerusalem, and you're like, who's Melchizedek? The text doesn't tell you who he is. It says that he was priest of God Most High, and that he and Abraham have a discussion, and they drink, I think they eat bread and drink wine. You know, other cultures at that time and the Jews shared this, right? They believed that there was one high God. And then surrounding that high God were lesser gods. And I'm putting this in air quotes, right? Were lesser gods. And they served the high God, the most high God, right? And this high God reigned over them and reigned over like these territories. And then these lesser gods, I'm using air quotes, had functions that they performed and this was called the divine council, right? Kind of think in your mind of maybe like a king. You know, like a, 
back when the king of England, right, had, had like actual like a power or something. You had the king, and then you, and I'm thinking about this because for some reason I got on a kick thinking about Thomas Cromwell, so I was reading up on Thomas Cromwell yesterday. Why? I don't know. But now I know because I'm, I'm using it in a sermon, so there you go. But Thomas Cromwell, was a, uh, he served King Henry VIII, and he did a lot of shady stuff for him, right? But he had roles and responsibilities, and there was parliament, and the parliamentarians had roles and responsibility in governing so that's what I'm thinking of, and that's what you should be thinking of when you think of this idea. Now, one important fact. One of the things that distinguished the religion of the Jews of this era from the other nations is that their God, Yahweh, our God, as Christians too, that this God is the only true God, that this God, Yahweh, not only is just like a regional tribal deity that this guy reigns over here and this guy, you know, Ray rules in Egypt and Baal rules like in the Canaanites and then Yahweh rules among the Semitic peoples. They believe that Yahweh ruled over all. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament, right? Like, think of this. Like when uh, the, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and then they put it at the statue of their god Dagon and they come in the next morning and the statue of Dagon has fallen down and broken before the Ark of Yahweh, the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's the idea, that there is only one high God, Yahweh, but there are still lesser spiritual beings, okay? Now, St. Paul picks up on this theme in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6. He says this, We know that an idol has no real existence, right? And he's thinking of Isaiah, right, when... There's a passage in Isaiah where Isaiah is castigating people for taking a piece of wood and carving it and creating it and then sending it down, putting food before it and worshiping something you've made yourself with your own hands. Idols have no real existence and there is no God but one. For although there are so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all things, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all, through all things and through whom we exist. Right? So, St. Paul doesn't say that there's no other spiritual forces at work. He says that there are many gods and many lords, but only one true God. This one true God is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the God and Father of us. So these other divine beings, they're not actually gods at all, but they're heavenly spiritual beings in service to God, except the ones that rebelled against God, and we know the story of that very well. And another interesting thing that separates ancient Judaism from the other the cultures of the day, with their beliefs in the one high God and so forth, at the time of the scripture, they did, the, the Jewish people, in their worship of Yahweh, they did not believe that Yahweh climbed his, climbed his way up to the top, right? So when you, if you want to get real deep and really nerdy, and you go read like the Enuma Elish and like the Babylonian creation and like uh, the mythology of the ancient Near East, right? And, and you see this in Egyptian stuff too. And, and even I think in Greeks, like in, the, in Greek mythology, like Zeus, I think his father is Kronos and Zeus has to kill his father Kronos and then he takes all the titans and he throws them into the underworld, and now Zeus is like the head god, the most high god, the true god over all the gods, but he got there by having to kill his, his father, right? 
And we see this in other religions in, 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 of the time too, right? Where you a patriarchal figure or a matriarchal figure and then the son comes up and kills that one and then takes their place and kind of supplants them as the actual God, right? That doesn't exist here in Scripture in the Old Testament for the Jews. There's one God, God the Father, Yahweh, and all of these other gods, they're not actually gods at all, but spiritual beings in service to their God and our God. I know that was a lot to throw at you, but I trust you. You can handle it. If you have any questions, don't email me. Email Ray. Okay. So it says, no, I'm kidding. You can, you can contact me. So this psalm, with all of that swirling around in the background, because we need to know the context to be able to interpret and read and teach and preach scripture with a degree of, of accuracy, right? So all of that stuff, think of all that in the background where... The psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord, heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory, strength, and splendor. Ascribe to the Lord glory, strength, and splendor. This is the action involved in what type of activity? Worship. Ascribing to the Lord glory and strength and splendor. Response with worship. And this worship begins with the heavenly beings. That even the heavenly beings, when confronted with the, with the splendor of God, with the beauty of God, with the glory of God, with the strength of God, even the heavenly beings subservient to God can only respond in worship. And that, brothers and sisters, is an invitation to us too to join that worship, ascribing to the Lord glory and strength and splendor, and we'll talk about why in a few minutes. Then it says to worship the Lord in the splendor or in the beauty of holiness. And what does that mean? The RSV and the NET Bibles, they put, put this as worship the Lord in holy attire or worship the Lord arrayed in holiness. Attired in holiness, arrayed with holiness, wearing holiness. Almost as if holiness is something that you could put on, like this, this preaching robe and stole that I'm wearing. Wearing holiness. In Exodus 28, God commanded Moses that the priests who were to minister before him need to wear sacred or holy garments. Right? And, and something that I find fascinating is a link between splendor and beauty and holiness. There's a link between beauty and holiness. I'm going to say it one more time because I think it's really profound. There's a link between beauty and holiness. And beauty is not something found in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is not something that is subjective. Right? Not to get too deep into philosophy, right? It's one of the transcendentals. Beauty is objective. And beauty is linked to holiness. That something about beauty should drive us to or inspire in us holiness. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we see in more traditional forms of Christianity why the worship is so ornate. 
with vestments and robes and incense, right, and, and religious art. Not because they're trying to be cool, not because they're trying to say we're better than you. The whole point of all of that, and the reason why we worship the way we do, with call and response and singing responses and singing hymns, all of that stuff, right, is to move us through beauty to holiness. A while back, I remember, I'm friends with an Orthodox priest, and he took me to the consecration or the, of one of their bishops to be like the head bishop of, of America. I went to New York for one day. And it was a very interesting experience because <laughs> that, it, it, it was reflective of something that I had no experience with. And the whole point of it was not to, to show not to draw importance to the man being consecrated to, the, to, the, to be the head bishop. It was all meant to focus through beauty to Jesus Christ. And that's what Christian worship should do. Regardless of what tradition you find yourself in, there should be something beautiful about what we do. And that beauty should inspire us to follow Christ. It should inspire us to worship. Being attired in the beauty of holiness can be external, right? But being attired in the beauty of holiness is something that is internal too. Remember, beauty and holiness are linked. And they're linked in, I think, our souls. And when the soul contemplates God, it is transformed and hollow, hallowed and made holy. It's sanctified. St. Augustine said, Worship the Lord in your heart, a heart widened and sanctified, for you are his regal and holy habitation. You are his holy and regal habitation. You guys watching via camera on, the web, on, the, on, on our live stream, I don't know who you are because I'm not on the internet right now because I'm preaching and leading worship. You, if you are in Christ, are God's holy Habitation, his regal habitation. All of you sitting here, you are God's holy and regal habitation. And that should move us to, that's, that's beautiful. That God could take us, stained with sin as we are, and turn us into not only something that is holy, but also something regal. And the scripture, let's go back a little bit to we talking about ascribe to the Lord glory, O heavenly beings, O sons of God. What did St. Paul just tell us in the reading from Romans? St. Paul says that we are adopted as sons of God. We are adopted as sons of God. Now we have to divest ourselves of a little bit of our, our modern and postmodern ways of thinking, okay? Because when we hear the word adoption, what do we think of? We think of, well, a legal process whereby somebody who's not part of a family is legally brought into and made part of a family. My, my, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, they did that for many years where they would bring in children and would foster them but fortunately for me, eventually in the future, they found one girl and one boy, 
And they loved them so much, they adopted them and brought them into their family and legally made them part of their family, even though biologically they weren't. Now, there's a truth to that, to what, and there's definitely a link to that in what St. Paul is saying as adoption of sons, but it's not limited to that. Because in the ancient world, you could do that. You could bring somebody out of, from another family into your own family and make them your son or your daughter. And that's beautiful, but it's not confined to that one meaning. So think back, right? Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, O sons of God. And St. Paul says in Romans that God is adopting us as sons. It doesn't say sons and daughters. It says sons, not because Paul is trying to be patriarchal, but to be a son of God in his mind, right, is more than just being adopted and legally part of a family, which it is, but there's more to it than that. It is now us, Christians, we are now, those of us who are in Christ, arrayed in regalness and in holiness and in splendor, we are the sons of God. We are then reincorporated, and then we are those heavenly beings that the psalmist speaks about in Psalm 29. And if I'm pointing to the Bible over here, so if you're watching, like, what is he doing? Because that's where we heard it a few minutes ago. And you might be thinking, well, that's not true, Pastor Mike. No, it is true. All of us, as the saints of God, right, we are part of God's new divine counsel. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 through 3, St. Paul says, don't you know that you will judge nations? He even says, don't you know that you will judge the angels? Have you ever read that and thought, what the heck are you talking about? That's what he's talking about. That those holy ones, us, as saints, holy ones, that that's what God is turning us into. And that we ourselves, as those holy ones, those of us who are in Christ, will rule and reign in the heavenly kingdom. That's what it means to be sons of God. And then when we worship in holiness, when we are arrayed or attired in holiness, Paul says again in Galatians 3 through 7, those who have been baptized into Christ, they have put on Christ. And when you put on Christ, you are attired in and you are arrayed in holiness. But not only that, right? This, it's not just something that's external, right? But it's also something that's internal. It's something that God does in our hearts. It's not just a declaration of your being justified. Yes, it's part of that. But it's the inner transformation of the human soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the rest of the psalm, Psalm 29, celebrates the Lord's ruling over all creation and the response that it's meant to instill in creation. And the work of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, the God the Holy Spirit, is bringing all of creation back into perfect union with himself. Right? And that's why we stated and confessed that long creed earlier, right? That's why we confessed it earlier. The point there is to state the unstatable. Because what it's meant to do is to lead us to worship, to lead us into adoration, being confronted with the knowledge that God is one day going to make us 
He even calls us in Scripture, you are co-heirs with Christ, that he is making us, his saints, his holy ones, he is making us regal and holy, and we will participate with him in his divine kingship over all of the renewed and restored creation at the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this should move us to... It should move us to something, right? It should move us to tears. It should move us to gratefulness and thankfulness and adoration and worship that that beauty that God has given us will lead us then to walk holy before him. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with the Father who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-creating spirits. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If you have a few minutes, I'd like to ask you to go to GoFundMe.com slash ZionStoneChurchRepairFund. Our bell tower is in need of some major renovation and repairs, and we could use whatever help you're able to give to us. If you'd like to find out more about us, check us out on our Facebook page, ZionStoneUCC, or on our website, ZionStoneUCC.com. Thanks again for listening. I pray that these sermons will continue to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ. And may the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you.